Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Just start off today by wishing all of our listeners in the United States, um, including my brother, uh, a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, big holiday season over there, so um, I hope they all enjoy it. And it's a little bit more comfortable than it was this time last year. Uh, the US is very much in the news from an economic perspective at the moment. Um, we got uh, the release of the Commerce Department's uh, one measure of inflation, um, and it's a measure that is favoured by the Federal Reserve. It's called the Core Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, and it's basically um, the consumer price index with volatile food and energy prices stripped out. And it showed in October the biggest year-on-year jump since the 1990s, 4.1% um, year-on-year. And indeed, if you include uh, food and energy, it's up 5%. Um, we also saw in October personal income increasing by a half percent and consumption by 1.3%. So all of these indicators are suggesting a pretty decent level of economic activity and inflationary pressures continuing to build. And indeed, on Wednesday, and I know um, this is Thanksgiving week, so things are always a little bit distorted. Uh, but every week, uh, the Commerce Department publishes the initial jobless claims. It's the number of people signing on new for unemployment that week. And um, in, in Wednesday of this week, it fell to 199,000, which was the lowest level, wait for this, since November 1969. Um, I stress it may be distorted by what's happening in Thanksgiving, but it does give a really strong indication of a labour market that's growing very strongly. Yeah, just to be absolutely precise, so I understand which one you're talking about here, 
This is a weekly indicator of unemployment insurance claims. So these are the number of people who, in a sense, in our language, in our part of the world, are signing on. Signing on the registry, yeah. The number of people signing on in the last weekly period of measurement was at its lowest point for 52 years. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, that's that's quite extraordinary. And it's it's consistent with something else that I've been looking at that's quite new, actually, or relatively new. The Federal Reserve, which is the central bank, the American equivalent of the ECB, just as the ECB has a branch in Dublin and in Paris and in all of the other euro area countries, the Fed has various branches all over the United States. And one of them is in Atlanta. And the, the Atlanta Federal Reserve has been doing this thing called now casting without wanting to start telling economists jokes, because <laughs> they're usually terrible. Uh, one of the things that economists always are moaning about is don't expect us to be able to forecast if we don't actually know where the economy is at the moment. And one of the problems with economic data is precisely that, that we're in the fourth quarter of 2021 at the moment, and we don't actually know what the economy anywhere, least of all the United States, is doing. So they're compiling new ways of trying to guesstimate where the US economy is at the moment. And it's quite extraordinary. And it's entirely consistent with those incredibly low numbers of people signing on. If you look at the range of forecasts, of private sector forecasts, it's called the blue chip consensus. It's a thing. And it ranges at the moment from about three and three quarter percent to just over six percent growth for the fourth quarter. Now, in and of itself, that's quite a robust range of growth estimates with the median at about five percent, which is a bounce back from where we've been. And it's very, very high. But the Federal Reserve in Atlanta has got this thing called a nowcast, which combines a whole bunch of other indicators to come up with where it thinks the growth rate for the current quarter might be. And it's over 8% in real terms, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, I'm not quite sure if, if it's going to be accurate, but if it's anywhere near accurate, it says that all of the forecasters are way too pessimistic and we're typically underestimating the strength of the US economy. Now, a number of things flow from this. First of all, it suggests that your highlight of the unemployment insurance claims, the number of people signing on, is really the right way to look at this. It kind of explains why the number of jobs is going up, the number of people signing on is going down. And it tells us the future for interest rates, Jim, doesn't it? Which way, which way are interest rates going to go on these kinds of numbers if they're remotely accurate? Yeah, it, it does, Chris. Um, it's and and th- that um, weekly unemployment claims report is also consistent with uh, the reported difficulties that many businesses are still having in recruiting staff. This week, the Federal Reserve published the minutes of the last meeting of their policymaking committee, the FOMC or the Federal Open Market Committee. There was a, a pretty mixed message coming out of those minutes. Uh, they stressed the need to maintain flexibility. In other words, they haven't a bloody clue where inflation and growth are going over the coming months, uh, but they're going to adapt a very adopt a very open attitude to whatever happens. So if growth turns out to be stronger and inflation turns out to be stronger, obviously uh, there will be an inclination to tighten policy. If, if growth is um, weaker and inflation starts to taper off again, well, then they'll keep policy accommodative. So I think it was a very pragmatic recognition of the uncertainty at the moment. And within the minutes, we saw very different views from 
different members of the FOMC. Some members are now arguing for more aggressive tightening, whereas a a number also, and these are the majority at the moment, they want to continue to adopt a more patient attitude. So as I say, there's a pretty flexible approach from the Federal Reserve, but um, a lot of the indicators they are getting at the moment, and if that no-cast sort of predictive power comes to pass, if we continue to see a number of um, inflation numbers like we've seen this week with that consumer expenditure index, um, certainly it will start to make the Federal Reserve very, very nervous. There was an interesting article in the Financial Times last week by their superb um, economics writer, Martin Sanbu. Um, He was looking at the whole inflation situation, particularly in the United States, and he was citing articles he has written over the last six months or so um, where he was really trying to downplay the inflationary threat. And he, he describes himself in the article as a proud member of Team Transitory. And he believes that these inflation pressures for a number of reasons are transitory and that um, it would be a massive mistake for central banks to react to these inflationary pressures by increasing interest rates. And his logic really is that the reason why inflation is taking off at the moment is because we're having repressed demand coming into the system. Supply was obviously damaged during COVID. So very strong demand, limited supply. We're getting the supply bottlenecks. We're getting upward pressure on prices. Uh, But he believes the correct way to respond to to this is to address the supply side not to dampen demand, Um, let that demand go ahead strongly and let the supply side respond. And at the end of the day, everybody would be better off as a result of that. And he also, of course, welcomes um, this transitory bump upwards in inflation. He regards it as a good thing. And I think few of us would actually disagree with that as long as it is transitory and it doesn't become embedded in the system. You you read the Sandbu article. How do you interpret it? As you say, he, he is a superb economic journalist. Um, he's a superb economist. And he begins by pointing out that the month-on-month numbers in the UK, the US, the EU for inflation in that order, 1.1% on the month in the UK, 0.9% in the US, and 0.7% in the European Union. Numbers that we had gotten used to being annual rates of inflation, not month-on-month inflation. If you annualize those numbers which is a little statistical trick that we can, our arithmetic trick that we can do. It means that annualized inflation on both sides of the Atlantic is over 10% at the moment. Now that's exaggerating it by anybody's standards, but he, it's his way of explaining why the opponents of team transitory, team permanent, if you like, are doing victory laps, are doing cartwheels, and are saying people like Sandbu have just been wrong. And as you say, he goes on to argue that a little bit of inflation, the inflation that we're actually getting, is a very good thing. And the reason why it's a good thing is twofold. One he explains and one he doesn't. The bit bit that he doesn't explain is that Sanbu, at heart, is an old-fashioned Keynesian, I think, in very modern economic clothes, but he has always been in favor. He was very anti-austerity very in favor of always expanding rather than contracting the economy for, for good reasons. He's a good guy. And I think that, that he, he's pretty sound in his reasoning behind that. The related reason why he thinks inflation is a good thing 
is as you say, is that it's it's all about allowing supply to catch up with policy boosted demand and pandemic repressed demand. So demand has been repressed because of the pandemic. And then as, the, as we emerge, hopefully from the pandemic in various economies, it suddenly comes on stream again. And the policy boosted bit of demand is also important here. So demand has had this sudden expansion. Supply can't catch up. Let supply catch up. One of the ways in which that does is there are price adjustments, also known as inflation. So why would you worry about any of that is his argument. That's nothing to worry about. Just let it all happen. Let it wash through the system. Because the alternative, which is what team permanent want them to do, is to suddenly whack up interest rates now and suppress demand. So rather than supply catching up with demand, they want to reduce demand for demand and supply to be equilibrated in that way. And what happens, the only way you can reduce demand is by reducing incomes, by reducing the size of the economy, by reducing jobs. You won't get those fantastic job numbers that you began this conversation with. So I think that he's he's got a really, really good point. And it's important to know what team transitory and team permanent are actually going on about. The second or next thing that he goes on to say is that these supply constraints are worth digging into a little bit. It gets a bit technical, and that's the reason why nobody does dig into it, at least in the popular press, is that first of all, they're showing signs of easing. If you look at shipping rates from China to the west coast of the United States, if you look at queues at ports, if you look at that classic indicator that began all of these supply constraints, you might remember a year ago, we were talking about lumber prices, or in our language, wood prices. And all these things are showing signs of coming off the top. Not everything is. There are plenty of things still really showing quite a lot of inflation. If you're, if you're a coffee drinker, Jim, I'd stock up now if I was you because I the, have, price, Chris. the price of Ara- Arabica coffee is literally going to the moon as we speak. But the oil price has stopped going up. Um, lumber prices are way down on where they were um, a while ago. And so th- there are early and very tentative signs that some of these things are starting to attenuate somewhat. And Sandwich's logic, I think, is quite compelling. It could be completely wrong, but the story that he tells is that 100% of the inflation that we've seen in the United States has been goods price inflation. And that's very important. The service sector of the economy, the much bigger bit of the economy, 80% of the economy, there's no inflation there whatsoever. And that's because the pandemic boosted the demand for goods and suppressed the demand for services. And as this all moves around, that causes temporary inflation as the demand for goods has suddenly been switched back on. And the the relative shifts when you actually decompose the data are quite dramatic. He's absolutely right to argue that this did happen. Goods production, manufacturers and other forms of goods. And that this is where all this just in time supply chain inventory management technique takes hold so that the slightest disturbance to this long, long chain of production processes that stretch, you know, around the world several times. And um, we, we are used to hearing the stories of any manufacturer crosses several borders several times. It, it just takes one weak link in that chain for the whole chain to collapse or at least to come under an, an enormous amount of stress. The other aspect of this that's really interesting is that behaviorally, that all of the different producers in this long chain of supply, of course, first of all, observe these price pressures starting to come through, these shortages starting to come through. They read and hear about all of these shortages in the daily press all the time. 
So what do they do? They hoard. So there's actually been a lot of hoarding along various stages of the production process, which have contributed to the supply shortages of, of a lot of the things that you and I consume. This is all about Sandberg argues to go into reverse. And this is where he may or may be right, he might be wrong, but it's a really fascinating aspect is that this will eventually work its way through. And as soon as all of these people that have been hoarding stuff realize that the price pressures are starting to come off the top, they'll start selling their hoarded stocks. And so there are lots of reasons to think that those price pressures will ease there more generally as supply and demand start to match each other a bit better than they have. And the other thing to note is that the one of the drivers you might remember a couple of minutes ago, I said, was policy, that, that economic policy from both a monetary and a fiscal, particularly all that pandemic supports for the economy, which boosted demand in all of these economies in Ireland, in Britain, in the United States, is about to go into reverse. All these pandemic supports are going to be withdrawn. And in our jargon, that's a huge fiscal contraction. That's the, the opposite of stimulus. So when you add all that together, you might actually still want to be on team transitory. And I must say, you know, I think Sandu's story is eminently plausible. Um, uh, I do think that he's been, he and I have been wrong in thinking that inflation has been bigger and lasted longer than we thought. But I admire him for sticking to his guns. And I must say that that would be the way I'm leaning as well. But I still am, as I have been for some time, unnerved by the actual measured inflation. And that going back to that, if the US economy is growing at 8% in real terms, I'm really nervous because that, that in and of itself is unsustainable and will contribute to inflation not being transitory for a lot longer than, than even we're thinking at the moment. The fundamental problem goes back to the conversation that you and I have had with Duncan Weldon, amongst others, and also ourselves, is that we've got, we, as economists, we still don't actually have a decent narrative, a decent explanation of what the inflation process actually is, which is why we have to tell these stories in the way that we're telling them. And it's whether or not we find these stories plausible or not. We can be economists and say that the thing that causes inflation is increasing in the money supply. But once you actually start to talk about the mechanisms, the process that, whereby you increase the money supply here and then what happens after that, that's all about stories. It's all about narratives or whatever it is that you think causes inflation, sunspots, whatever. We don't have a common framework for analysing the inflation process, which is, when you think about it, quite incredible. Which side of this debate divide, this debate are you on, Jim? Well, on, on balance, since the beginning, I've been very definitely, well, I won't say very definitely, but I have been erring on the side of team transitory. And, you know, it, it's been a tough three or four months for anybody with that sort of view of the world. Um, and I was um, quite, re quite relieved to see somebody like Sanbu delivering this sort of um, analysis last week. And perhaps it's confirmation bias, I'm not sure. But uh, he does make a number of really interesting points. You know, he describes the ketchup bottle economy, where many of the obvious causes for higher inflation, um, as you've said, the extraordinary fiscal stimulus we've seen and the manufacturing supply chain bottlenecks are now set to go into reverse. Um, he shows that um, services as a share of personal consumption have fallen from 69% in February 2020, just before COVID, to 65% at the moment. And by implication, that means that the goods share of consumption um, has increased, thereby creating uh, the inflation and bottleneck problems we're seeing on the goods side rather than on the services side. And um, 
he is now uh, asking the question if we're going to see a, a spending shift back to services. Um, that would help the whole team transitory argument. And um, he basically argues also that capitalist globalization is now working. Um, and he cites the fact that semiconductor exports from East Asia are now higher than they were in 2019. So those supply chain bottlenecks, as you've described, are would appear to be starting to um, ease from the system. And, and I know in terms of the global motor industry, um, that certainly would represent good news because there are serious concerns about the global supply of cars around the world next year because of that semiconductor issue. So if this turns out to be the beginning of a trend, that certainly would be good news on many different fronts. And um, uh, Sanbu's overall assessment is that the biggest mistake of the past 30 years was to pursue policies aimed at dampening demand, where yeah, there should be exactly. a lot more folks on the supply side. And I think that's absolutely right. And so I think it probably is right still to continue, as the Federal Reserve seems to be doing, with, and indeed our own ECB closer to home, less so the Bank of England. I suspect the Bank of England by Christmas will have raised interest rates. Um, but that's the implication of what Sandu is saying, is that if you agree with him, then you hold off. If you disagree with him, then you do what the Bank of England is doing, you start to raise rates, and you probably raise rates by quite a lot over the course of the next year or two. And the way in which Sanbu is wrong is that we hit this point this next year in 12 months time and interest rates have gone up by, you know, a couple of percentage points in, in America and here with huge implications, Jim, for, for all of us, whether we're investors in equity markets or mortgage holders or overdraft or credit card um, uh, debtors, uh, it, 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 you know, could well be very, very serious if, if we're wrong and team transitory is wrong. So, um, you know, this is something we'd rather not be talking about. Yeah, but uh, I, and- I, I, I think um, we can be a bit more relaxed in Europe um, than in the United States. Or, or if we're the, listening to the Irish Central the, Bank chief. Uh, yes, but uh, yeah, he's sending out some pretty bearish messages. But if you look at the growth numbers that are coming out of Europe at the moment, we got uh, German quarter three growth this morning, which was a little bit weaker than had been expected. Um, and the report was characterized by a few things which I think resonate with what we've just been discussing. Uh, strong consumer spending. So that's repressed demand coming into the system. Um, secondly, the government's contribution um, reduced. And that's a suggestion that the fiscal expansion during COVID is now starting to be taken out of the system to some extent. And also business investment spending was quite weak. Um, you would expect that that strong rebound in consumer spending, the repressed demand, you know, will have a finite life that uh, once consumer spending catches up, it'll level off again. So, um, and we saw the EFO survey of German business conference earlier this week, also suggesting um, a little bit of weakness on the German manufacturing side. So I, I think the economic story in the euro area um, is very different than in the United States. So I think the European Central Bank will continue to adopt a much more relaxed approach than the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve. And from the perspective of Irish borrowers, be it corporate or personal, uh, that is good news. It does suggest 
that interest rates are likely to remain low for the foreseeable future. So um, why is your central bank boss sending out all these warnings this week? Uh, I, I have no idea, to be honest. Um, but I, I guess if you think about what central bankers are all about, um, you know, they were they were reared uh, with a, a hatred of inflation. And uh, the minute you see inflation coming into the system, you know, that's how they respond. So... Um, so not not to be nationalistic about it. So there's a New Zealand chap running the Irish Central Bank and there's an Irish chap running the economics department of the ECB in Frankfurt. And they couldn't be sending out more different messages. At the yeah, Philip, Philip Lane is incredibly relaxed, chief economist in the European Central Bank. Absolutely. Uh, incidentally, um, his mother died earlier this week. So condolences to Philip on that. Um, and I worked with Philip's father, Tim, in AIB many years ago. So um, I was very sad to see that. But anyway... Um, yeah, F- F- Philip is adopting an incredibly um, relaxed approach at the moment. You know, he's very definitely on the team transitory. And I think Philip also recognizes uh, the inherent risks in any tightening of monetary conditions at the moment, given all of the uncertainties out there, given the very significant levels of government debt that have been run up across the European Union over the last couple of years. But both of them sit on the ECB council. Yes. Uh, do you think that there is a divide on that council? Uh, oh, I, I would be amazed if there's not a divide. Um, I, I would have thought the Germanic side of the house, uh, you know, the Dutch, the Finns, um, the Austrians would probably be a lot less comfortable than the Southern European representation at the moment. Um, and, and I think there would be also a very different, well, there obviously is, we've discussed it, but the differing view between Maloof, Maclouf and um, Philip Lane. But I suspect in terms of the ultimate decision on interest rates, uh, what Philip Lane is saying would be a hell of a lot more influential than what the governor of the Irish Central Bank is saying. So I think the hawks, or sorry, the doves, the relaxed ones are very much in control at the moment. That, that of course, could change. You know, two or three months of horrendous inflation data and strong economic growth, you know, could certainly change all of that. Uh, but I'd be reasonably, uh, I shouldn't use the word confident, one can never be confident, but I'd be reasonably uh, relaxed that, you know, we, we will see an easing of growth over the coming months and that these inflation pressures in Europe will prove transitory. And hence the ECB will maintain a historically low interest rate position for the moment. So one of the consequences of this kind of conversation has been that, yeah, the US is going to be putting up interest rates, not soon, but sooner than the Europeans are going to be putting them up. And that that interest rate gap gap between the United States and Europe is going to grow. And the market that copes is very clearly reflecting that yeah. is the exchange rate. Dollar, absolutely. Yeah. And there's been by certainly by historic standards, it's not been a huge move, but but certainly by recent historic standards, it's been quite a big move in the dollar against the euro. I mean, it's all very well the Americans opening up to our visitors now and being able to go to New York on a pre-Christmas shopping spree. But why would you when it's so plumbing expensive and getting more expensive by the day as the exchange rate is going against you if you're a euro person? Absolutely. Um, This is very definitely a positive dollar story at the moment. But from what I hear, it is not deterring shoppers from Ireland flocking back to New York. Really? Um, Yeah, apparently reminiscent of what we saw uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And um, I think the currency is 
kind of irrelevant that whole argument. Yeah, it's it's it'll it'll be interesting. But the, the weaker everything. euro, of course, will be helping Europe, the European economy, and of course it will. Um, yeah. Uh, but it also helps to boost, in a small way, European inflation. You don't think that's going to cause the ECB... Do you think there's a level of the euro against the dollar which the ECB would start to worry? Or is it just something they're very relaxed about? Um, no, I, I, I suspect, to be honest, there's very little discussion at the monthly ECB meetings about the level of the euro. Um, if you were to see a dramatic move in a relatively short space of time, um, well, that would change that story. But I think, you know, the moves we have seen have been pretty gradual, pretty modest. And um, as, as I, I, I think that uh, the European Central Bank would on balance actually welcome a slightly weaker euro at the moment because um, the positive impact on exports, I think, would offset any negative impact on imported inflation. So um, I, I, I don't think it's an issue. Um, I suppose if it were to go below parity, that then would start to become a big issue. Uh, but we're well away from that at the moment and unlikely to breach it anytime soon, I would have thought. Yeah, well, I won't ask you for an exchange rate forecast no. because you might ask me in return for one as well. And that goes against my religion, as you as you know. Uh, moving away from things purely economic to things that are important for the economy. Let's have a quick COVID corner in the few minutes that are left to us. And we've had a few reactions to the last time that we did this. And I just wanted to, in a way, uh, retrace some of the steps that we took, some of the arguments that I made at discussion points that we had last time. And Firstly, one of the things that puzzles me a lot is the way in which the public messaging in all countries, not just Ireland and Britain, but particularly Ireland and Britain, is so poor. And particularly in Ireland, where um, it's the, the take-up of the booster leaves, leaves a lot to be desired, both in terms of the logistics around its delivery and the, the alacrity with which people have taken it up. Um, and to a certain extent, that's true here in the UK, um, with some nuances, with some differences. And I think that the the first problem, if you like, or the way in which the problem is encapsulated is the fact that we've called it a booster. And this speaks to this point I'm making about messaging is that where are the people that know how to communicate effectively about public health? Where is the proper messaging? We, when you have um, scientists who are well-meaning, um, who have no idea about communicating with people running things, I think that partly explains it. The way to think about um, this third vaccine is not as a booster, which that word booster conveys optionality, that it's a kind of a nice to have rather than a must have. It's a top up rather than something that's fundamental. I think the way to explain it is to say you're not vaccinated. You're not fully vaccinated until you've had a third dose and that it is a three stage vaccination process. And a few scientists are say, asking the same question. And I think you need to get the messaging better that the third dose is essential. Second thing I'd say is that the data has backed this up all the way through to the, the first waning of the Pfizer vaccine in Israel, produced a big spike in cases, and the third dose reduced it. It's having the same effect in the UK at the moment. Case numbers, um, the rate of increase is slowing down a bit. But the thing that's really coming down in the UK now, because they vaccinated the over 80s first, then the over 70s, and then the over 60s. Now they're doing the over 40s. Hospitalizations and deaths in the UK are coming down very, very rapidly over the last 
few days. Long, it can change, long may it continue, but it seems that the data so far are pretty compelling about the effectiveness and the importance of the third dose. And I think Europe's recognised this in that there is a proposal today that the vac- European pan-EU vaccine passport at some point in 2022 is only going to be a valid passport if you've had the three doses, which is a recognition of just how important it is. And I can see that here in the UK because um, although you get a vaccine passport, which is essential, for example, if you want to go to um, certain venues in Wales or Scotland, less so in England, but vaccine passports are in the UK, they expire after a period of time, after two months, actually, because they're clearly getting ready for the vaccine passport to be given to people that have had two doses at the moment, but at some point in the near future that you're only going to get a vaccine passport in the UK if you've had three doses. So the message from both persuasion, from data, from compulsion, from rules, from regulations are get the third dose. And I just don't not sure that that message has fully gotten across. And until the third dose is in people's arms, everywhere is going to have a problem that, that isn't getting this message across. And this, the other thing on COVID corner I'd ask you, Jim, is what the hell is Irish thing? Of, what have you got against antigen testing? Okay, in, in, in relation to the booster thing, um, I, I agree. Stop calling it a booster. Yeah, okay. The the second or third dose, depending on what original dose one got, uh, but that extra dose is clearly now absolutely necessary. As you mentioned, what happened in Israel, and that's a good case study, I think, for the rest of us. Um, I don't see any reluctance here, actually, amongst people who got the first or second dose to actually get a third good dose. And um, I, you know, I, I, I know um, it's it's going to be gradually rolled out to the over 60s over the coming weeks. Um, I cannot wait for it to be rolled out to the under 60s because, um, you know, the moment I get my first opportunity, I'll be going to get uh, my next dose. So I, uh, the, the, the problem here is now, as was the case with the original vaccine rollout, that um, the delivery of it is pretty tardy again. But, but it's, not su- it's not supply this time because there's no, plenty. No, it's not supply. No, no. So, so, what, so what is the problem? Um, good question. Just the systems obviously are not in place to deliver it. Um, a lot of the capacity that was put in place to deliver uh, the first round of vaccines uh, was probably dismantled. Uh, will now have to be put back together. Staff will have to be rehired to administer the vaccines and so on. Um, I think it's a little bit of a supply chain bottleneck at the moment, if you want to. Self in, self-inflicted one by the sound of uh, things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, lots of... Um, it, it was amazing that three or four weeks ago, Ireland was being described as top of the league in terms of the whole vaccine rollout, the um, management of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. And um, we were lauding ourselves at that stage, clapping ourselves on the back. I have to say I was a bit sceptical. But anyway, uh, that was the the view three or four weeks ago. And suddenly it has flipped in a pretty dramatic way. And um, we're, we're now struggling again to get the extra dose out there. But I have no doubt that over the coming weeks that they will get back on top of that situation. And um you know, come the new year, I think we will see a significant proportion of the population uh, with the extra vaccination. I'm afraid to use the word booster, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so we, we will get it right. In in terms of the antigen um, issue, I have absolutely no idea 
um, what the ideological opposition to it is. Um, I heard a lady from Neffet, um, she was probably speaking in a personal medical capacity. She wasn't representing Neffet, I presume, on the radio this morning, describing herself as a huge fan of antigen testing. Um, but yes, the chief medical officer and um, a lot of other people are totally opposed to the antigen test. Um, I know several examples where the antigen test has shown up a positive and that has prevented people um, from going out there into the big bad world and infecting other people. So if, if, if it catches, you know, one person, that does represent a measure of success. So I, I just don't understand it, to be honest. Um, and I think if it had been in place, as people were arguing, it should have been over recent months. Um, I don't think we'd be in quite the same mess at the moment as we are in. So every, time, I, every time I'm asked, every time I visit Ireland over the last few months, I'm asked to bring a handful of antigen tests with me because we get them for nothing. We get, you know, every household has got a supply of them here. Um, I've got plenty. We're, we're all encouraged to do at least two a week. Yeah, I mean, I, I've done five in the last week and, mm. um, you know, they're, they're all showing up negative. And, are, you, are you betting them on the black market, Jim? Uh, no, I'm not actually. <laughs> paid €25, Euro, uh, but I have a son in college in London. He's coming home next weekend, so I might just ask him to bring me home a few from the courtesy of the NHS. God bless the NHS. Can I just um, wrap on one thing, Chris, if I may? Um, here in Ireland today, we got the third quarter employment data. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning, not in any great detail, but in the year to the third quarter, employment was up by 9.8%. It has reached 2.47 million people at work. And um, that represents the highest level of employment we've ever seen in this country. And interestingly, there's another... Um, indicator within that report the number of hours worked per week it was up 4.3 million hours um, in the third quarter to reach 77.1 million hours and the, here's the the interesting piece about that that in the third quarter of 2019 that figure was at 77 million so we have more hours being worked today than pre-covid so that is indicative of the, the health of the Irish labour market and indeed the health of the Irish economy. Or it could be everybody working from home telling fibs about the number of hours they're working. Well, that, that could possibly be the case as well. Uh, and Chris, I just want to say, I mentioned, um, I wished all our US listeners a happy Thanksgiving at the beginning. And I'd like to specifically call out uh, a friend of mine in Santa Rosa in California, who's a big fan of the podcast, uh, Kathy Webb. And um, just like to personally wish her um, on behalf of the um, other hand, a very uh, happy Thanksgiving. And, and likewise, um, I too extend my best wishes to all of our American friends and, and listeners, of which we have quite a few these days. And I've been struck as well this time, Jim, about the number of messages um, of goodwill um, on Thanksgiving Day that I've had from the States today. It seems to be a thing this year that um, certainly has not been present in my life before, to, certainly to the same extent. Um, and I, a number of my American friends have said to me that Thanksgiving is now a, a bigger deal than Christmas in the United States. Um, so uh, good wishes to everybody. Absolutely. And Thank you, speaks. Chris. Cheers, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www 
cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.